1 John, the first nine verses. Page 1301 in the Pew Bibles, 1301. This too is God's holy word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is the reading of God's holy word. May bless that to us as we give our attention to it this morning. Let's turn also in our forms and prayers book from the back of our Psalter hymnals to Article 17 of the Belgian Confession. It's on page 170 in the forms and prayers books, page 861 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. We considered last time how our God is the God of Jacob. He's the God of sovereign election who chooses sinners unto himself. And now we see how that sovereign decision of election is carried out in real time in human history. Article 17, the recovery of fallen man. We believe that our good God, by His marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find Him. Though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from Him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make him blessed. This the church of Jesus Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus far in our study through the Belgian Confession, we've considered who God is. We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is but one God. He is one God, a single, simple, and spiritual being. He is the eternal and unchangeable God. He is just and good. He himself is the overflowing fountain, the overflowing source of all that is good. 
And in connection with considering who God is, we've also considered how God has made himself known to us, namely through general revelation, through creation, by which all men are left without excuse, but also how he has made himself known to us through special revelation in his word. Due to that special care that he had for us and for our salvation. But our confession has not only told us about who God is, our confession has also told us about who man is. How man was created from the dust of the ground and how man was created in the image and likeness of God, good, just, and holy, able in, in all things to conform to the image and will of his creator. And this indeed is the man that we find in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. A man who loved God, a man who lived with God and, and communion with his creator. Things were good in the garden. Man knew no misery, but only God's mercy. For our first parents, Adam and Eve, they, they knew the Lord, their creator, the great creator of the world. They knew him intimately. They lived with him in, in communion and, and fellowship. They knew his love. They knew his, his kindness. This God who did not just create them and then leave them, but this God who, who stayed with them and lived with them and communed with them. That they might live with Him in eternal happiness unto His praise and glory. God owed them absolutely nothing and they owed Him absolutely everything. And so it was their great privilege to, to serve their God and to serve their Creator in the garden. There was no imperfection in their character. Nothing was, was lacking in their virtue. And they were blessed by God. As Genesis 1.28 tells us, and God blessed them and God spoke to them. He spoke to them that they might know him. And this indeed is the way things used to be. Boys and girls, when I think about these first two chapters of the Bible, one of the things that often comes to my mind is when how, how excited my brother and I would be when, when dad would, would come home from work. Perhaps some of you can, can relate to that. That when I was a little boy, perhaps my favorite time of the day was around 5.30 because that's when, when dad came home. And, as, and so as soon as, as my brother and I could hear the garage door opening and the, the heavy steps walking across the kitchen floor, we would run up the stairs on all fours. Dad is here. Dad is home. We were excited to see our dad. And because in America we're not as good about taking off our shoes at the door as we are in Canada, dad would often walk right to his recliner. And my brother and I would fight over who got to untie dad's boots and take them to the door. And of course he would say, you can take the left and you can take the right. We were eager to serve our dad. Dad was home. We were, we were eager to serve him, not because of we were trying to gain his affection and favor, but because we loved our dad and because dad was finally home. This is something of the picture that we get in the first two chapters of the Bible. When I think about God walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, I think about Dad coming home and how excited we were to, to see and to serve our father. 
And this is what you can imagine it would have been like. God would, would come to them in the cool of the day, and, and you can picture them dropping everything and saying, God is here. God is, is here with us. Let us run to him. Let us go to him. God is here. They were eager to serve God and to commune with God because God was God. Because he was their kind and benevolent father. Because he loved them and they loved him. That is until the serpent entered in. And Adam and Eve did the one thing they were explicitly told not to do. And so on that day when they heard the Lord coming to them in the garden. Rather than, than running toward him with love and joy. They fled from him in terror. And hid themselves among the trees in the garden. The communion was broken. The peace and serenity that so characterized life with God, with God in the garden was, was shattered to pieces. And all because they believed the lie of the devil over the, the truth of the Lord. In Genesis 2, 15 and 16, that the commandment of life was, was set before them. You will surely you may surely or freely eat of, of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This command was given to man as a probationary test of sorts. And so if Adam obeyed that word, he would live. And if he obeyed that word, then after some time, he would have received all that that tree of life symbolized, namely everlasting life and, and communion with, with the Father. But disobedience would result in death and misery. And so we come to Genesis chapter 3 where we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that, that the Lord God had made. And he starts speaking to the woman. And while we aren't told anything, first of all, about the fall of Satan and his demonic angels, we discover in verse 2 that in this kingdom paradise that God has created, God has an enemy who now slithers into the garden. Satan invades God's paradise to, to destroy the works of God. He doesn't approach Adam as the, as the covenant head, but he approaches his wife. And he doesn't present himself to Adam's wife directly in all his, his vileness of character and being, but he makes use of the serpent, which was not a bad animal or an evil animal, for there were no bad animals in the garden, but it was the most crafty and most cunning in the garden, and so Satan decided to make the serpent his tool to draw the woman into his world of deception. And in his deception, he begins to attack the, the character and word of the Lord. He, he denies God's lordship and he questions God's word. As one pastor has put it, he, he minimizes God's good provision and he maximizes God's one prohibition, putting all the attention on that one tree that, that God said they could not have. And he makes false promises, promises that he himself is not able to deliver on says, if you eat of the tree, you will not surely die. For God knows that on the day when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good from evil. Satan paints a picture in which God is the bad guy. 
he paints a picture in which God must somehow be, be holding back or, or holding out on Adam and Eve. When in reality, we know that God was not holding out on them at all. For God had not only been gracious to give them all of their trees to eat from freely, but God had been gracious to give them himself, to, to condescend, to stoop down, and, and to commune with those two creatures whom he had made from the dust of the ground. He was gracious to, to give them their dignity as being image bearers who are good and righteous and holy. That commandment of light was not an oppressive, overbearing word from the Lord. Yes, it was meant to, to test them, but it wasn't cruel or, or unfair. They weren't lacking anything without eating from that tree. And they had no real reason to believe otherwise. For they knew God's love. They knew his kindness. They knew God himself to be their gracious caregiver. God who made them and stayed with them to commune with them. But the woman was drawn in. In her response to the serpent, she essentially echoes Satan's thoughts back to him. She too minimizes God's good provision and she maximizes God's one prohibition. In verse 2 she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you may surely, or you may, you may freely eat of all these trees. And in verse 3, she maximizes God's prohibition, adding to the prohibition, saying that God says we may not eat of it or even touch it. God didn't say they couldn't touch the trees. But she minimizes God's good provision, and she maximizes God's one prohibition. And so God's goodness and grace are being called into question. And then we come to verse 6, and we're told that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Commenting on this verse, Derek Kidner writes, and so the pattern of sin runs right through the act. For Eve listened to a creature instead of the Creator. She followed her impressions against God's instructions, and she made self-fulfillment her goal. This prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment all seemed to add up to life itself. This is what the world still offers us today. But man's lifeline is spiritual, namely God's word and the response of faith. To break that lifeline is death. But Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And while the story is often presented as the woman being this seductress who, who caused man to fall, it appears to be the case that, that the man was actually right there with her the whole time. She gave fruit to the man who was with her. And so it seems from the text that Adam saw everything but did nothing. Adam knew what God had said directly concerning this commandment of light. As God's prophet, he did not rebuke the serpent with the word of the Lord. He didn't say, hey, that's not what God said. 
as God's priest, he did not keep that garden sanctuary pure from, from evil that would thwart against, or as God's king, he did not crush the head of the serpent right then and there and say, how dare you come and, and call God's character and God's word into question? And as we heard a few weeks ago in Article 14, although he was in honor, he understood it not. And did not recognize his own excellence, but he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. And so he separated himself from God who was his true light. As soon as he transgressed the commandment of life, his immediate reaction was to run away and hide. As verse 7 tells, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But this shame that they now felt on the outside, the shame of their nakedness was of course only a, a symptom of the shame they now felt on the inside. For They are not only physically naked, but now they are spiritually naked as well. They've been disrobed of their righteousness and their goodness and their holiness. They've transgressed the commandment of life and now they deserve the consequence of death. Communion has been broken. And so when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. The serpent had promised them life and blessing through their rebellion. But those were promises that he himself was not able to fulfill. And so the actual result of that rebellion, our confession tells us, was that man plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable. Guilt and shame entered in. Man knew that he could no longer stand before God in his own right. And so man became totally and utterly miserable. And isn't this the effect that sin continues to have in our own lives today? That sin only ever makes us miserable. To this day, it still causes to feel as though our, our bones are wasting away, as David would say in Psalm 32. It destroys, it destroys marriages and families and friendships. Sin destroys communion. It promises everything, but it can deliver on nothing. And this is why the Apostle Paul says what he says in Romans 6.21 in the context of, of making his appeal that all should, should look to Christ and let not sin reign in their mortal bodies any longer. He asks that, that stirring question. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We do well to take the apostles' question to heart this morning. What fruit are you getting from those things that only make you miserable? What fruit are you getting from those sins that only make you feel ashamed and exposed? The end of those things is death. 
guilt and shame entered into their inmost being, Adam and Eve's whole way of thinking became so warped and twisted that rather than, than running towards God where they should have run in, in confession and to plead for His mercy, they run away from God. And not only that, but for the very first time in their lives, rather than looking to, to the hand of the Lord for provision, they look to their own hands and they sow fig leaves for themselves to cover a problem on the outside that was actually a problem on the inside. They look to themselves and to their own efforts and they run away. They flee from His presence. The communion is broken. And as they hear God coming, they know their guilt and they know their shame. And so they, God finds them trembling all over. And this, says P.Y. Young, is the human dilemma of every age. Apart from, God's, apart from God, man experiences no joy and peace. He is filled with fear and trembling. And the recognition that he must deal with the inescapable God, always he regards God as his adversary. This is how Adam and Eve now regard their creator, their father, as their adversary. But what is the Lord doing? In verses 8 and 9, to be sure their sin must be dealt with, but God is, is pursuing these guilty sinners, these guilty creatures. God invites them to, to come to Him. He says in verse 9, where are you? This, of course, is not a question about geography or location because we know that, that God knows exactly where they are. God made the leaves they've sown for themselves. He made the trees they're, they're hiding behind. When God says, where are you? He's not asking a question of, of location, but he's asking a question of, of relationship. Where are you? It's not a question that's aimed at making Adam feel more afraid than he already is. But it's a question that's aimed at bringing Adam and Eve to repentance in order that they might confess their sin. He comes to them as, boys and girls, as your father's traps come to you and you've done something bad and you go and, and hide in your room, you know that that sin has to be dealt with, but, but he's still your father. Where are you? Come to me, the Lord is saying. This is the question that God comes to us with today. Where are you? Why? Why are you running away from me? Why would you try to, to hide from me? Don't, don't you know who I am? And as we sang, I'm the God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where are you? Come to me, says God. God graciously pursues guilty sinners. He says, come. Don't hide yourselves. As God seeks the man, the woman, it's true that his justice will 
certainly has to be fulfilled. There's no getting around that. But as we heard last time, Article 16, ours is the God who shows himself to be as he is, just and merciful. And so already here in the garden, Adam and Eve, have, as they hide, they've made an idol. They've, they've reshaped their view of who God is. They disregard God's mercy. They make him out to be a God who is only angry, who is unforgiving. But how do Adam and Eve respond to this gracious pursuit of the Lord? They blame God and they blame each other. Verse 10, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The covenant head, the federal head, insisted on his wife. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Even in their confession, they don't fully own up to what they have done. And yet, what does God do? God, how does God respond to their half-hearted confession? And that's what is half-hearted. He comforts them. And God identifies himself to them and to us as the very first minister of the gospel, as the very first minister of, of good news. And he directs his eyes to the serpent. He does not give the serpent any word to say. He says, cursed are you. Notice nowhere in the following verses, he curse the man and the woman. He curses the ground. Pain comes in childbirth. He does not curse the man, but he curses the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And then we come to the very first word of the gospel we often refer to as the mother promise in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. God proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of Adam and Eve. He proclaims Christ to them. Yes, Satan will bruise his heel, but Christ, the promised seed of the woman, shall crush his head. As our confession says, God came to the man and the woman promising to give them his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make them blessed. Boys and girls, the promise we find here in Genesis 3.15 is the promise that, that governs the rest of Scripture. Everything from here, Genesis 3.15, to the end of Revelation 22 is, is simply God bringing this mother promise to pass, putting enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that that seed of the serpent might be crushed once and for all. 
Here writes one, Pastor God enters the fray on man's behalf against the devil who would control the human race and rob God of his glory. And so God puts enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Satan's goal was to destroy the works of the Lord, but to this end, writes the Apostle John, was the Son of God made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. And this is what John is, is seeking to show us here in the opening lines of his epistle, that this communion between God and man has been restored in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't just pursue, he doesn't just seek after that communion, but he, but he fulfills that, he restores that communion. Again, writes P. White Young, amid the difficulties and dangers of life, all men seek some kind of comfort, and many are the false comforts and consolations wherein people have sought refuge. But in contrast to all those false comforts of the world, the Scriptures proclaim the one sure and solid hope. It is the comfort which God gives. It is the comfort that was announced by God as soon as the human race had fallen to sin. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Jesus Christ Himself, we know, is at the very heart of that promise. He is the essence. He is the, the substance of that promise. As the Lord's Day 6 tells us, God himself began to reveal the gospel already here in paradise. He later proclaimed it by the, by the patriarchs and by the prophets, and he symbolized in all those Old Testament ceremonies, and finally, what did he do? He fulfilled it in the sending of his own Son. Of course, we yet feel the effects of the curse, don't we? And we long for the day when, when the curse shall finally be lifted forever and gone forever. And we shall dwell again with God in unhindered, unbroken communion forever. But that communion has already been partially restored in the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit. In Christ, our access to the throne of grace has been restored. In Christ, we need not be afraid of God anymore. We can indeed come to Him in the confidence that we are no longer naked. But we're clothed in the righteousness of His Son. As we heard in our assurance of pardon, we may feel the shame of our sins that God has provided us, an older brother who is not ashamed of us, who is whose death does away with our shame. So we need not fear to come before God anymore, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this was Adam and Eve's own assurance. Yes, they are driven out from the garden in verse 23, but before that, what does God do? The Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so blood was shed for the first time. Blood was shed in order that Adam and Eve might receive a covering for their guilt and shame. And that shed blood, we know, is a foreshadowing. It points them forward to that seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of that greater sacrifice that, God, that John can say in the opening lines of his epistle, that our fellowship, our communion is with whom? Our communion is with 
the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, we have communion with one another, and that communion is is important and crucial and wonderful. And we market that communion to the world, to those who are lonely and distressed, and we say to them, come, we have have communion with us. But but primarily we say, come, we have have communion with us because we have communion with the Father in Jesus Christ. For if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin, for He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Jesus came down from heaven, He revealed what was in the heart of the Father all along. He revealed the heart of the Father more fully than had ever been revealed before He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to pursue guilty sinners. He came to restore that which we in our sin had broken. He said, come unto me and I will give you rest. He lamented over Jerusalem. He revealed the heart of God, which says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he would have us all to repent find mercy and grace in Him. This, of course, that we celebrate, isn't it, as we come to the table. That as much as we desire and, and long for that communion with the Lord, Christ desires that communion even more. As much as we desire to commune with Him, He longs to commune with us. That's why He died for us. And that's why He gave us the supper. The table declares that our communion with the triune God has been restored to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And only that with the table also directs our gaze to the return of Christ. After man fell into sin, he lost access to the tree of life. He was banished from the garden. That had a twofold purpose. On the one hand, yes, it was part of his, his punishment. He no longer had access to that tree of life. He would surely die. But there's also work of God's grace. Lest man eat of that tree of life and live forever in his sin and his misery. But there's coming a day when we shall have access to that tree of life once again. That tree of life, which John describes in Revelation as its leaves being for the the healing of the nations. As it sits there in the midst of this new garden city, the new Jerusalem. In that city it shall be said to us, blessed are those who wash their robes. So that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so as we eat the bread and drink from the cup in remembrance of him, let us do so saying in our hearts, even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you. And all the wonder of the gospel that in our 
guilt and shame. That when we were hiding from you in the garden and trembling all over, you sent your son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent to make us blessed. We thank you, O God, that you have kept that promise in Jesus Christ. And that as the gospel goes forth, you continue to pursue guilty sinners. You remind us of that as we come to the table. That we are saved and our shame is covered not by the works of our own hands, but by the works of Christ's hands. Who desires to commune with us even more than we desire to commune with him. And so, Father, we pray that you would lift and direct our hearts heavenward as we come to this Holy Supper. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.